it's just frankly absurd of a notion to think that not only would I have to destroy all of my work and advocacy for BDS, but also I would have to forfeit my constitutional rights of free speech to speak at a university. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. Welcome back to the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm your co-host, Nora Barrows-Friedman with Asa Wynn-Stanley. Asa, how are you? I'm good, Nora. Thank you very much. Newly resigned from the Labour Party, as our readers will know. <laughs> Talk to me a little bit about uh, a little bit about that. And um, congratulations, I think. I don't know. <laughs> what, what, <laughs> what do I say to that? Yeah, I mean, I've had mixed emotions about it, to be honest. Like, it, it's quite liberating in a way, um, because of the strictures and the punishment that the party's bureaucracy was trying to apply to my journalism. Uh, 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 Essentially outlawing it, even out, out, you know, banning it, really. And I've seen many, as I wrote in the article about this, I've seen people over the last few years who have been suspended for, uh, at least in part, for just tweeting one of my articles. Um, And it's getting so extreme now. They even cited some of my tweets that have got nothing to do with even the Labour Party or so-called anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. And they're just literally using the phrase Israel lobby is supposed to be anti-Semitic. I mean, which is absolutely ridiculous. Um, On the other hand, I mean... It's frightening. Yeah, yeah. On the other hand, it it is sad that because it kind of it marks the end of a movement, really in a way. Right. Um, so that is sad that, um, and when I see <clears throat> developments in the US with Bernie Sanders, for all Bernie Sanders' flaws, and I disagree with him on a lot of things, mostly international yeah. things, you know, he calls himself pro-Israel. Um, right. He's been... He's against the BDS movement, yeah. Yeah, but Corbyn actually had a lot of his own flaws, you know, in, in some ways, uh, as we've seen really. So, but the point was that there was a big popular movement behind him, and that's yeah. why I re- that's where I really saw the hope, rather than as him as an individual, so much. Right. Um, and you've got that in America, you know, behind there's this oh yeah behind Bernie Sanders, and there's a, there's an opportunity there to make some real change, um, and we did have that here, but it's gone now. It's been smashed, really. Um, doesn't mean to say there can't be something new in the future. Um, but it is, that is my feeling on resigning from the Labour Party. It's just, it is kind of sad. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've, the last, what, four years you've been grinding away on, on this story, um, Mm. as, you know, essentially the most prolific journalist, um, writing about this, you know, this so-called, uh, witch hunt, uh, um, inside the Labour Party. It's, Yeah. yeah, I can, I can tell you have mixed feelings about it yeah uh, well uh all solidarity to you asa thank you for having uh so much integrity as always thank you, <laughs> on this issue and many others um we have a really great episode today um speaking of uh you know the the witch hunt in the labor party and kind of um you know all the fallout that happened we have an excellent interview that we did with tony greenstein who's a wonderful anti-Zionist Jewish activist. Um, and uh, 
We also have an interview with Abby Martin and her her lawyer, Gadir Abbas, about this lawsuit that Abby uh, has filed against the state of Georgia um, and its anti-BDS law. So that's you know, really uh, great news that, that this, is, this is one more lawsuit uh, challenging the unconstitutional um, anti-BDS law in the country. Yeah, the interview with Tony was great. I mean, Tony is a really interesting character. Um, he is someone who's been a stalwart of the Palestine Solidarity Movement in the UK for many years. He's someone who I've yeah. learned a lot from over the years um, uh, about... Um, the history of Zionism in particular and the history of um, Jewish resistance to Zionism. Um, yeah. And um, he was, I mean, he almost single-handedly really defeated Gilad Atzmon, um, who is a, a, a one of the very rare cases of genuinely um, anti-Semitic uh, Jewish individuals, you know, who, who has said some yeah. v- very disturbing and racist things. Um, and, um, yeah, Tony's just, I mean, he, he, he's a great interview and I mean, the interview will speak for itself when we get into it. Um, but tell me a little bit more about, um, the interview with Abby, because I wasn't present for that one. So how, how did that go? It was great. Abby, of course, uh, we interviewed her a few months back about her documentary film, Gaza Fights for Freedom. Um, she was invited to give a keynote speech at Georgia Southern University. Um, and when she you know, was signing the contracts, she was presented with essentially a memorandum uh, saying that you know, if she signs the contract and is paid you know, pretty standard amount for uh, a keynote speaker, she would have to essentially pledge her loyalty to the state of Israel. Um, and vow to not engage in or participate in or support the, uh, the, the boycott uh, of Israel. Um, and so when she was presented with this contract, she did the right thing and refused to sign it and then went a step further and uh, filed a lawsuit against the state of Georgia for infringing on her rights to free speech. Um, and uh, yeah, the, so it, it's, it's great to, to listen, you know, to her talk about how uh, these laws are meant to shield Israel from any and all criticism. They're also, um, you know, that, that, that this claim of anti-Semitism is being weaponized to shut down discussion of, of Israeli policies um, and how it has nothing to do with anti-Semitism. It's, it's just a way to protect Israel and these lawmakers who are enacting these laws, which have been passed now in 28 U.S. states, um, are basically being, you know, paid off by the Israel lobby to do uh, its bidding for the state of Israel. And even, you know, the prime minister's office, I believe last week, issued a, a tweet saying, you know, we're very proud to have worked with U.S. state lawmakers to enact these yeah. laws. So, like, re- like blatant foreign inter- foreign interference, and they're boasting of their own supposed <laughs> yes. influence as well. That's you know? right. And we're supposed yes. to believe it's not happening, or that it's it's anti-Semitic right. if we point out the fact that it's happening. That's you know, right. It's kind exactly. of it's, it's kind of a mass gas- gaslighting, really. Absolutely, absolutely. So Abby joins, um, you know, many people around the U.S. who have issued these lawsuits against Arizona, Kansas. 
Uh, there have been lawsuits now pending in Maryland um, and Arkansas. Uh, so Georgia, you know, is is um, is is going to be forced to defend its indefensible indefensible um, anti BDS law, and and they Good. will lose because these these uh, these laws are inherently anti democratic, yeah. and anti constitutional. So good. Well, we'll be yeah. following that closely. Absolutely. And I look forward to hearing this interview back on the podcast myself. That's right. Um, so let's just go to the the interview with Abby and her lawyer, Gadir Abbas, from the Council on American Islamic Relations. Uh, and then we'll take a short musical break and, and we'll go to the interview with Tony Greenstein. It's going to be a great episode. Stay tuned. Abby Martin, welcome back. And Gadir Abbas, thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you Thanks so much for having us. So about a week ago, the Georgia chapter of the Council on American Islamic Relations, CARE Georgia, the CARE Legal Defense Fund, and the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund announced that they had filed a federal free speech lawsuit against the University System of Georgia. A friend of the show, the journalist and filmmaker Abby Martin, was invited to be a keynote speaker for the 2020 International Critical Media Literacy Conference at Georgia Southern University. In order to participate in the conference and receive a speaking fee, university officials asked Abby to sign a memorandum of agreement, which stated, quote, you certify that you are not currently engaged in and agree for the duration of this agreement to not engage in a boycott of Israel. Abby refused to sign the Israel loyalty oath and her keynote was canceled, as was the entire conference. Georgia is one of 28 U.S. states to pass a draconian anti-boycott measure. The latest was South Dakota, whose governor signed it by executive order in mid-January, and the U.S. federal government has once again introduced a new version of the Israel Anti-Boycott Act. Like previous versions, the 2020 Act would criminalize participation in boycotts of Israel, singling out boycotts of, of illegal Israeli settlements. Despite these laws being passed and introduced, Americans overwhelmingly reject laws designed to penalize supporters of BDS, the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Movement for Palestinian Rights. Abby Martin, let's start with you. T tell us about this conference and what happened to you when you were presented with this contract, essentially mandating you to pledge your allegiance to Israel and not engage in a constitutional right to boycott. Sure. Um, as a investigative journalist who's worked a long time with Project Censored, uh, the largest research body in the U.S., I was really excited to speak at the Critical Media Literacy Conference in uh, Georgia Southern, um, I, you know, to give a presentation about um, critical media literacy, kind of deconstructing mainstream media narratives. And it really had nothing to do with my pro-Palestine activism or criticism of the Israeli government nor the film that I had just released, Gaza Fights for Freedom. I mean, this was a completely separate topic. And so I guess I had never connected the two. Um, of course, I knew about these laws being passed all across the country for independent contractors. I had heard of the speech pathologist in Texas uh, filing her lawsuit. I heard about the hurricane relief workers not being able to get funds unless they sign this loyalty pledge. But I just had never connected that me speaking at this conference and being a keynote speaker at a public institution in Georgia would trigger this clause. And so I was frankly shocked um, when I got that contract. And of course, I refused to sign. And, you know, really, how could you comply with something like that? Um, would I have to destroy all the copies of my movie, um, all the interviews that I've done about BDS? I mean, my entire body of work advocates BDS. It advocates for Palestinian rights. So it's just frankly absurd of a notion to think that not only would I have to destroy all of my work 
and advocacy for BDS, but also I would have to forfeit my constitutional rights of free speech to speak at a university, which is supposedly this bastion of free speech, right, that we're told um, hyperbolically uh, disproportionately affects conservative speakers. They're not allowed to speak, and this is all kind of this free speech issue centered around conservatives. Meanwhile, these laws, these draconian laws, are being passed completely under the radar in more than half of the states in the country, and I find it just absolutely shocking that no one knows about this. This is the real free speech issue. This is the real black hand of the government coming down and stamping out um, our constitutional liberties. And it's not just about free speech. It's about the right to peacefully participate in political boycotts, which has been a constitutionally protected right for decades. Not only has Trump signed an executive order allowing the government to enact lengthy inquisitions into the political activities and opinions of students and faculty on U.S. campuses and speakers who, who speak there, but the Israeli government has boasted several times recently that it has helped U.S. lawmakers to pass these bills on behalf of Israel's interests in crushing the BDS movement. You know, one could talk about foreign interference in U.S. democratic protections here, but of course, protecting Israel's interests are sometimes more important to state and federal lawmakers than the interests of their own constituents and the interests of the U.S. Constitution. Um, Abby, talk about what bringing a lawsuit like this means for you and for activists and students who don't have resources to fight this kind of bullying from Israel lobby groups and lawmakers. Absolutely. I think that this is the real crux of the issue, right, is it's not about me. I'm just simply using my voice and case as a vehicle to not only shine light on this piece of legislation that is in place all across the country and, in fact, being pushed on a federal level, especially under the Trump administration, but also just shining a light on the fact that independent contractors perhaps don't even know that they are unwittingly forfeiting their constitutional rights in order to work. I mean, think about how absurd that is, that in order to get paid and just function in society and work as a contractor in so many of these states, you have to give up your free speech rights. <laughs> so this case yeah. is certainly emblematic, not only of the problems of the system and the failings um, of our government, and these legislative bodies who are just more concerned with their political capital than they are about the constitution that they swear an oath on in order to serve their office. But also just, it's the, it's the frontline battle of the free speech movement right now. Um, and the fact that Palestinian rights have been constantly undermined um, and marginalized, you know, especially in light of the war on terror, I think that this issue is part and parcel with just, you know, anti-imperialism, anti-war struggles, fights for liberty and justice. And so I hope that this case can really overturn um, the entire law in Georgia and hopefully convince others and inspire others to stand up and be next because we have to take the, take the matter into our own hands and we have to go to uh, the, the state level and really challenge these laws firsthand if we really want to take this on because we cannot trust our politicians to do it. Gadir, you're the senior litigation attorney with the CARE Legal Defense Fund, and one of the attorneys taking this anti-BDS bill head-on on behalf of Abby. Can you talk about this lawsuit and how important it is to remind states like Georgia that the First Amendment is still a thing that exists, at, you know, at, at least for now? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, like Abby said, uh, you know, this really is the most important free speech issue of the 21st century and probably for the last, you know, few decades. You know, there has not, there is not a historical analog to this 
you know, uh, you know, more than two dozen state effort to suppress a particular viewpoint to penalize folks that are advocating against um, the apartheid that's going on in Israel, the violation of the human rights of Palestinians. And, and, you know, this is what the Bill of Rights is for. The Bill of Rights is to protect the rights of uh, an unpopular minority. And unfortunately, in the United States, um, Israel um, and, and folks who advocate for Israel's policy preferences generally get their way. Um, uh, and they have been getting their way in passing these laws. And like you mentioned, they've been boasting about it on Twitter. And so, you know, but... You know, it is the case that the free speech clause of the First Amendment is historically um, uh, effective in protecting the rights of folks who are expressing unpopular views. And I think that in, in this particular instance, the, the fact that these laws um, have passed and, and have um, been pushed um, in governor's offices, you know, at the federal level and, and state legislatures across the country, reflects the success of the BDS movement um, rather than a deficit. Uh, BDS movement has successfully brought to light the plight of Palestinians. Um, They've done so using a quintessentially American tactic of boycott activity. And, uh, you know, people like Abby, um, people like um, uh, uh, Bahia Amawi in Texas, uh, Hassan Bazian in Arizona, and Saqib Ali in Maryland, um, are, you know, are stepping forward and fighting uh, against these laws. And that's, you know, uh, what one important thing that we've seen. And, you know, this is, um, uh, you know, uh, we see this in, in other areas as well, is when one person steps forward and emboldens others to do the same. And, you know, there's no other um, political issue um, that is more fraught than um, uh, the Israel-Palestine issue in the United States. Um, and and, uh, and it's, it, we do see that folks are reluctant to get in. Um, but uh, when people like Abby step forward, it certainly does make it easier for other people to step forward. And so, you know, we're confident that, you know, that a court will see it the way that we do um, and, and that this lawsuit will prevail. Can you talk a little bit more about the work um, being done, you know, not just on this case in Georgia, but across the U.S.? You mentioned uh, injunctions against anti-BDS laws in Texas, Arizona, and Kansas, Uh, two more pending in Maryland and Arkansas, although in in Arizona, the the injunction was just lifted. Um, Can you detail that a little bit and and talk about what it takes to bring these lawsuits against states and, and how they keep getting passed, despite their inherent contradictions with, with the U.S. Constitution? Yeah, I, I think that the reason that they're getting passed, even though they're clearly illegal, and, you know, there were some leaked memos from the Anti-Defamation League, um, I think it was last year, um, where even ADL staffers, you know, uh, many of them viewed these laws as illegal, um, but pushed them nevertheless because, um, uh, whatever happens in court, um, you know, that it's likely to take a long time. And in the meantime, the laws uh, do serve an important, uh, as an important and high profile deterrent against folks that are looking to express views that are critical of Israel. And that bulwark against BDS activism, I think, is what um, the um, groups that are pushing these laws are going for. And Unfortunately, you know, while there, you know, there has been a good amount of success um, that these, you know, legal challenges um, have um, gotten, the, the issue has been that 
um, because um, uh, the folks pushing these laws are you know, firmly in control of legislatures um, across the country, um, you know, what we see is that, you know, for instance, in, in Arizona, um, you know, you have a successful injunction and you have a law that's amended that moots out the um, plaintiff. And in Texas, you know, we filed suit uh, on behalf of a, a speech pathologist. Um, and uh, the Texas legislature's response was not to heed the uh, clear order that um, the judge issued um, and uh, step back from their assault against free speech. Um, rather, the Texas legislature amended the law so that it wouldn't apply to the person that brought the challenge, but would apply to companies with 10 or more employees. And I think that's going to be a recurring um, challenge in this legal fight. And it points the it, it, it underscores the need at some point to be able to defeat these laws politically. And there have been successful examples of political coalitions that have made it impossible for anti-BDS laws to get through the legislature. In Maryland, um, uh, there were repeated efforts uh, over the course of a number of years to uh, ram through an anti-BDS laws, but um, a coalition of activists, uh, you know, got together and pushed back against those laws and successfully defeated them um, in the Maryland legislature. Unfortunately, um, there was a Republican governor. Um, who uh, was able to issue an executive order on his own um, that, you know, doesn't accomplish, you know, isn't as broad as um, some of these laws that get passed, but still applies to all state contracts that are issued through state agencies. And so while they were successful politically and the legislature, you know, there was still um, an executive order that they they had to deal with. And and that's where, as a lawsuit in Maryland, we filed came from. Thanks for that update. Um, Abby, what's your next step here and how can people support your fight against the Georgia law and uh, and the other laws on the books around the U.S. Uh, on on you know local, state, and now federal levels, of, of course. Well, first and foremost, I would say donate to CARE and the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund. They're doing incredible frontline work, not only with free speech issues, but of course, discriminatory actions against Muslims happening nationwide. So I'm really thrilled to have such an incredible legal team representing me. Um, <clears throat> so definitely donate to them. But as far as my next step, I mean, I'm just excited to see where this can go because I think that the majority of people who hear about the case are really appalled. They're appalled that these laws have passed. Uh, They're surprised at the lack of media coverage. And they're confused at how state legislatures have passed them, as you were. It's like, how have these laws been passed, you know? near unanimously across the country how is this being done at a federal level how is this happening a flagrant blatant violation of our constitutional rights here we are you know 60 years after the montgomery bus boycotts and having you know the right to boycott so central in order to advocate for justice um so it is quite perplexing and so i just hope that people understand what the frontline battle is because this is not about um you know, what we think it is and what they're posing it is. Because if you look at these laws being passed by similar types of legislatures, including the state of Georgia, they've actually passed a Campus Free Speech Act, 
which hypocritically is supposed to protect the rights of speakers right. to speak about certain issues, you know? And, yes. and, and when you look at who these speakers are, again, going back to the notion that conservatives are being persecuted on campus, it is just quite hypocritical on its face that, you know, this really, really goes down to stifling Palestinian activism and stifling BDS because it actually poses a huge threat to the apartheid system um, and its biggest sponsor, which is the U.S. empire. And that's why you see this this recent executive order with the conflation of anti-Semitism with pro-Palestine activism on campus. As Gadir mentioned in the press conference that I encourage everyone to watch and check out the legal brief that is excellently structured and details all of this um, really well, um, he talks about just that this isn't even necessarily meant to be implemented. It's meant to censor and control political speech and scare people into not participating in the BDS movement, to not participate in divestment campaigns, and to not participate in, let's just say, street actions. If Gaza is getting bombarded in the next massacre that is soon to happen, probably, um, what if people are scared to go join a street action because they're scared to get documented by lo local authorities and then get registered? And if they're at a university, you know, there's threats of expulsion. There's all these threats looming over their heads. So I think that that's what this legislation is really about. And as Gadir mentioned, we have, and as you mentioned, we have the prime minister's office themselves bragging about their efforts on the ground passing these laws. So I just hope people can really realize how important this struggle is. Get involved. Find out if your state has these sort of efforts going on to stifle free speech. And also just join your local Palestinian solidarity groups and divestment campaigns around you. Download the BDS app. The UN just released over 100 companies that are profiting off the illegal occupation in the West Bank. And so I just encourage everyone to get motivated and inspired um, to join these sort of movements themselves. Gadir, your thoughts on that as well. How can students, activists, journalists, and scholars fight this, especially, you know, as, as Abby mentioned, Trump's executive order at the federal level uh, is in place, and this new iteration of the federal anti-BDS act is now looming again? Well, some people are getting contracts that include this clause, and if you're getting contracts that include this clause, uh, you could give me a call and we'll file a lawsuit for you. Um, you know, there's the, you know, that's the only way, you know, that's the only way to push back against the use of this, you know, anti-BDS clause and contracts, you know, throughout the country is to, is to sue whenever they, when, whenever they arise. And those lawsuits provide opportunities for activism of all kinds, you know, legal and non-legal alike. Um, uh, you know, beyond beyond tackling the discrete challenge of those anti-BDS clauses, um, it, you know, it, you know this, you know, the BDS movement is, I think, where it is in large part because of campus activism, um, uh, JVPs, um, SJP groups uh, throughout the country have done, you know, heroic work, um, uh, divestment campaigns across the country, and have really led the way um, in terms of advocating for the rights of Palestinians, uh, you know, we're all um, uh, connected in some way to the despicable actions against um, uh, the rights of Palestinians um, that are fueled by um, uh, the federal government um, that we pay taxes to, um, uh, the, uh, you know, the use of um, uh, you know, it's it's every day it seems that um, some state uh, entity is, 
you know, hosting a delegation from Israel or is um, uh, engaging in some law enforcement exchange with um, uh, the IDF or other Israeli law enforcement. So there's, uh, you know, this isn't a, this isn't a problem that's far away. Um, this is a problem that's here um, and uh, you know it implicates uh, all of us. And so you know it starts. Small, uh, you know, if you're looking for a place to start, you know, don't, uh, don't your, your workplace, don't have, don't buy Sabra Hummus, you know, that's, <laughs> you know, an easy place to start um, uh, and, you know, and work your way up from there. Avi Martin and Gadir Abbas, thank you so much for uh, your work and for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. We'll put uh, links into the podcast blog post that accompanies this um, with the press conference and, um, and, and the legal uh, documents as well. So thank you so much. Thanks so Thanks much, Sarah. And coming up in one moment, an interview with Tony Greenstein. Stay tuned. أول نفس من خلق الهم بنولد روحك شايفها العالم لازم تنجلد مقموع عسير مغترب لاجد بحلم بهالبلد بتنفس حرية مش خاطع يكون عبد مشتتة بسبب بلاء قرارات أخذوها غصب بالتحدي كيف ممكن يعيش بنبض بحب الحياة بفرح وسط كل هالخبط بغنل توني جريزين welcome to the electronic intifada podcast nice to have you with us thank you for inviting me you are somebody who's a long-standing activist um, and you have come into the story of um, what's been happening in the Labour Party over the last five years as you are one of the people who've been expelled from the Labour Party in the course of this sort of whipped up uh, and manufactured anti-Semitism so-called crisis. Um and this is a story that we've covered a lot on the Electronic Intifada for the last few years. Um, we're going to get into that and the reason for your expulsion a little bit. But uh, maybe first you could start and explain for our listeners a little bit about you and your, your, the, your background in the Palestine Solidarity Movement. Okay, uh, well... Uh... I guess, a, well, I, I, I was the uh, child of a, a Jewish rabbi, an Orthodox rabbi, and I grew up in an Orthodox Zionist uh, family. Uh, I guess uh, at about the age of 16, partly as a result of, I was on one of the equivalents, British equivalents of birthright uh, to Israel. I spent a month there going around, seeing the occupied territory. This was a 69, mind you. There was not many, many settlements. Uh, and I was already convinced at that stage that you can't occupy another people. I, I, I didn't know a great deal about the background uh, to the refugee problem and so on, because I'd been brought up to believe that uh, Israel wanted to talk to the Arabs, but they were wholly unrealistic because they didn't like us because of who we are, wanted to drive us into the sea. Uh, and after all, the refugees had willingly vacated their lands and homes in order that they could conquer Israel. So they didn't really have a, a great uh, right to return. You know, all of these myths, you know, were taken as absolutely true. And you, you never questioned it. And in fact, it was only 
when I was when we had a debating society in my Jewish school and no one would take the side of Zionism as racist as I volunteered as devil's advocate that I began to learn that maybe there was something more to it than I had originally thought. So that was my early background. Uh, when I went to Polytechnic, Brighton Polytechnic, uh, which we turned into quite a militant leftist stronghold, we allied with the Palestinians and uh, they educated me uh, a great deal and I also learned a great deal on my own accord about uh, what the situation was and uh, in 1977 I moved the first ever motion at NUS conference calling for a democratic secular state because uh, I've always opposed two states because uh, I oppose partition in Ireland and so on and I think we need to draw comparisons people often don't they exceptionalize Palestine just as Zionism exceptionalizes the Jews. So, I mean, that's in essence my background. And then 1982, I was amongst a group of 15 or so people, Roland Rantz, Professor Moshe Machler and others, uh, Jeremy Landor, Helen Stoller. Uh, and we sat around uh, in a room in the University of London Union and basically decided to set up a Palestine solidarity campaign which I understand was not the first attempt, but uh, this one actually got off the ground. And really that uh, went from there. So PSC, in a sense, was my baby, and I was on its executive for about 10 years. However, uh, as you may be aware, I am fairly disillusioned with where PSC has gone because I, I think it goes through the motions, and in particular its response uh, to the present crisis has been nothing short of abysmal. I'm afraid. Uh, I mean, the ge general response of the whole Palestine solidarity movement is, I don't think it's understood from the start where it's come from, why, why and what it is about, to put it bluntly. When you say where it's come from, um, it, you've been quite vocal uh, on your blog and in your activism about um, the issue of... So what the what Zionist groups call new anti-Semitism, but is uh, actually criticism of Israel, criticism of Zionism, uh, and that they refactor it and smear us as anti-Semites. Um, and you've been quite critical of the Palestine Solidarity Campaign for, for in your view, failing to get to grips with this um, this issue. Um, maybe we can get into that uh, a little bit more. Actually, I would. Uh, what we I'd like to discuss with you of of how the issue of the what's been going on in Labour has spread and has affected the rest uh, of the UK. Um, but before that, maybe we can talk about um, your experience within the Labour Party. Um, you are someone on the left. Um, would it be correct to say the radical left or the, would you prefer revolutionary left? I'm on the far left or, yes, the Marxist left or the revolutionary left. Uh, I mean, these are labels, but uh, I, I think I can proudly say I'm uh, well to the left of most people. No, apart from my son, James, who I now call an ultra left. <laughs> <laughs> apart from him. <laughs> I don't know. It's what else. we all want for our children. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah. I'm, I'm happy he's on the far left, or the ultra left, and the ultra right. So uh, that confirms me that I've done something right in my life. 
Um, so, uh, what, so, but you entered the Labour Party. You were one of these terrible, awful entrists who uh, entered the Labour Party in, I believe, 2015. Is that right? That's right, yes. Uh, it was... It was shortly after I, you know, I'd, <laughs> I'd had one of the major things happen to me in my life, which was a liver transplant, which I won't go into. But uh, very shortly after that, I, in fact, Jeremy Corbyn's election was uh, during my kind of uh, period in hospital, and uh, obviously I was energised and enthused, as were most people, and uh, I signed up as a registered supporter initially. And you remember the kind of panic that swept through the right of the Labour Party and the British establishment at the prospect of Corbyn leading. Uh, and I was about one of four or five thousand people who voted and then had their vote uh, fished out of the electronic ballot box uh, and told uh, I was ineligible because of what well, I wasn't really told why I was ineligible. But I then joined about a month later the Labour Party and for some reason uh, it slipped through the net because, I mean, the net was being used already to try and weed out the worst uh, malefactors, as it were, who were attempting to join. I, I should add, I was in the Labour Party. I, I was in for about 15 years in the 80s and the, the early 90s. Oh. Uh, and I was suspended in 1992 because of the Kinnock witch hunt over the poll tax oh, and other things. So uh, I suppose I had form, in fact when I put in a subject access request, they, they were totally incompetent because they sent me two, didn't know which they'd, they'd done that. One of them went to my previous address when I was a Labour Party member in the 70s, uh, which I, I didn't receive uh, because I wasn't living then. I hadn't lived there for some time. So uh, uh, I suppose I had a certain form in the Labour Party. Uh, but yes, I joined in around October uh, 2015. Uh, and then... On March the 18th, 2016, a letter was sent to me saying you had been suspended for remarks you're alleged to have made. Don't forget, I was amongst the very, very first, uh, and I think I can proudly claim the title. I was the first Jewish person to be expelled from the Labour Party, if that's an, uh, an accolade. Uh, but I knew nothing about what I'd been alleged to have said. I mean, you know, I mean, I was... Uh, I had an inkling what it might be, but nothing more. I mean, there was no clues. I rang up, tried to get hold of John Stolliday, who was the head of the compliance unit then, who's now moved over to become the head of the equivalent in unison, incidentally. Uh, oh. But I, I was no wiser. Yes, well, these people travel around in much the same corrupt circles, I'm afraid. Unison being the people, it's the largest trade union in Britain, uh, which suspended me for uh, similar reasons. Uh, but uh, yes, I, I knew nothing until two weeks later, my uh, my elder son, uh, Tom, uh, or elder son, Tom, uh, said, you do know you're in the Telegraph and the Times, and I, I couldn't recall giving them either of them uh, an interview. So I was uh, somewhat curious, and sure enough, uh, I'd been suspended as part of uh, the false anti-Semitism, uh, which, which was starting up. It was just after Oxford University. You know, the, yeah. the big trial runs, and I was already very, very suspicious of what was happening. Uh, if you remember, over the summer, it was a male that started it with the story of Paul Eisen, the Holocaust denier, and Jeremy Corbyn keeping company. And then it mm. moved over to Gerald Kaufman, the Jewish MP, who'd spoken yeah. about Jewish money uh, uh, 
in uh, being responsible for the Tory party stance. He, I bet he was wrong in, in just allocating it to that. But they focus on the term Jewish money. Now, uh, it's not a phrase I would use, but uh, I did a quick search of the Jewish Chronicle archives and there's over 600 references. I mean, it's a phrase hmm. which is used within the Jewish community very often. Uh, we shouldn't fund this. We shouldn't fund that. Uh, there's talk about Jewish donors withdrawing. I mean, it, 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 it's not an anti-Semitic concept. Well, it, it can be in certain hands, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, and, you know, Kaufman was the recipient of a volume of abuse from the campaign against anti-Semitism, if you notice. Uh, it had about 20 entries. He died very soon after. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they wrote a horrific thing about uh, the CAA, about how his, he had left a terrible stain on British public life. So, I mean, that's the nature of these people. And they targeted, I mean, Jared Coffin was kind of an elder statesman of the Labour Party, who I believe when he was younger was um, a Zionist, um, and he moved, and it was considered to be on the right of the party as well. Uh, and he, and I don't know if he moved to the left or not particularly as he got older, but he certainly he moved um, towards more sympathy with the Palestinians. And um, when he was older... He gave quite a famous speech in the uh, House of House of Commons. I, I I think it was after the 2014 war in Gaza or during it. No, no, it was after Operation. Was it? Uh, what was the one in 2008 nine? Uh, no, Castled. Yes. Uh, yes, yeah. he gave uh, one of the the best parliamentary speeches I've ever heard. Uh, saying that my grandmother did not die in a Polish ghetto in order that Palestinian grandmothers could die in Gaza. Uh, yes, it's a it's a speech which today would get an instant expulsion for drawing the comparison between what happened uh, under the Nazis and what happened in Israel. I mean, that is uh, verboten. Uh, you know, it's off the cards. But Kaufman was always a Zionist. He never abandoned Zionism. And I can remember b- confrontation with him back in the 80s when he was a, a leading advocate for Paul Zion. Uh but he was someone who, and he was also, as you say, on the right, he was in what they call Harold Wilson's kitchen cabinet. So he was a very bright uh, person, but on the right. Uh, and he famously uh, wrote that uh, Michael Foote's election uh, manifesto was the longest suicide note in history. So uh, mm. he was a, a parliamentarian of some renown. He, he died, when he died, he was father of the House of Commons. Uh but he was someone who, when he saw what was happening, was absolutely appalled uh, in the occupied territories. Now, he he boasted of knowing all the early Israeli leaders, Golda Meir, uh, Rabin, and so on. But And obviously, he didn't know the circumstances of the Nakba. I, 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 or he was very, very naive about many of those things, because, of course, what happened in the occupied territories is an extension of what happened then. But, uh, yes, he was... He was a humanitarian and he was outraged at what Israel was doing and he didn't hesitate to compare it to the Nazis. Uh, and the Zionists hated him for it. I mean, uh, the Sussex Friends of Israel Facebook group, I mean, is just covered with insults. Uh, you know, one such as uh, one person I can remember says, uh, this is a day of better news. You know, that kind of comment, you know. I mean, mm. they were people. Yeah, so, uh, really disgusting, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You are. You have written about. You define yourself. You are an anti-Zionist. You define yourself as an anti-Zionist Jew, um, 
And um, one of the recurring themes of the manufactured anti-Semitism crisis in the Labour Party has been, I mean, it's hard to prove definitively because you don't get to, you know, good figures on this kind of thing. But the, the impression does seem to be uh, to a lot of people that a disproportionately high number of people who have been suspended, expelled, um, or otherwise disciplined by the Labour Party f over allegations of anti-Semitism have actually been Jewish themselves. Um, now, of course, as as you've actually famously written on your blog in your um, years of um, blogging against Gilad Atzmon, um, as as you've written yourself, of course, there are such a thing as Jewish anti-Semites. It does happen, you know, just as there are sort of self-hating um, people of colour, for example. Um, but by and large, quite often um, uh, the, the allegation of a, the self-hating Jew is thrown against Jews who are doing nothing worse, quote-unquote, than um, supporting Palestinian rights, um, criticising Zionism, everything from what you've described that Gerald Kaufman did um, to being outright anti-Zionist. Everyone who happens to be Jewish is swept up in this kind of way as um, anti-Semitic or self-hating Jew. Or one of the things that's happened as well in the party is just their Jewish, your Jewishness has kind of been erased, especially with that's happened in the case of Jackie Walker, of course, who, who's, who's a black Jew, a mixed, mixed race person of mixed race heritage with Jewish ancestry on both sides. Um, can you talk about that a little and, and what it means that there are so many targets of this witch hunt in the Labour Party over the last five years have been Jewish themselves? OK, I mean, before I... Uh... I do that just a comment on the term self-hatred it, it was israel shahak who pointed out that the label that the nazis attached and used against german anti-fascists like the white rose group was that they self were self-haters in their view a per an individual is subsidiary subordinate uh, to the national racial identity and any individual who denies their race, denies themselves, and they are therefore self-haters. They are people who have contempt for their own their own race. And so it's not a term I use. I mean, of course, if anyone was to be accused of self-hatred, then it would be Zionism. I mean, if you read some of what the Zionists say about the Jewish diaspora and you didn't know it was a Zionist, you would think it was an anti-Semite. You know, I mean, when Rupert was accused of being an anti-Semite, he didn't deny it. He said, so what? So have I ever denied it? You know, and Rupert was the major figure in Palestinian jury. So this is Arthur Rupin, who in the 20s and 30s was the head of the Jewish agency, the World Zionist Organization's body in he Palestine. He was the first director right? of the Palestine office in, in Palestine from 1908. He developed the Kibbutzim in essence. He mapped out almost the Labour Zionist form of colonisation. There is no more crucial figure in the early Zionist history than Arthur Rupin. He was, he's called quite correctly the father of land settlement and also the father of Jewish sociology as well. Uh, I mean, if I had time, I could uh, 
go in. I mean, Rupin is a is quite a fascinating guy. I mean, he he was a total believer in the racial sciences, eugenics. In '33, he also personally handled the Havara negotiations with the Nazis in 1933, the trade agreement uh, with the Nazis, and. Before that, uh, to ease it. Well, it, that's that's actually a very interesting topic, and discussion of that forbidden historical subject was was of course what got Ken Livingston um, pushed out of the Labour Party. Um, we could probably do well. We could certainly do a whole podcast on on that subject. Uh, that would be really interesting. Actually, we probably should. Um, oh yeah, Nora, um, like. I mean, I'm sure some of this topic that we were just discussing... You, your question, which is simply to say, yes, uh, Jews are undoubtedly disproportionately represented <laughs> amongst those who've been victimised, uh, which isn't surprising, because although the majority of Jews today are Zionists, uh, probably a disproportionate amount of Palestine solidarity activists are also Jewish, you know, so it, it works both ways. Uh, but the main thing, to I think, to understand about this is it's not about anti-Semitism and it's not about Jews. Uh, it, they may yeah. use Jews as a stalking horse and a pretext, but it's not yeah. about... And that's why they have no hesitation. So we see, for instance, today, the suspension of Joe Bird as part of the anti-Semitism that, you know, you couldn't make it up, except, yeah. of course, no one dare point out the elephant in the room. Right. I mean, the entire point is to shield Israel from any and all criticism. Um, and we're seeing this taking place not just across the UK, but in the US uh, with Trump's executive order in December, basically paving the way for the government to enact lengthy inquisitions on students and members of faculty on US campuses who dare to criticize Israel. Um, we're already seeing um, complaints filed by Israel lobby groups against universities for for the mere existence of Students for Justice in Palestine chapters on, on campuses. Uh, we're also seeing a, a push for similar uh, pressure on Palestine solidarity activists in Canada. Um, and so, you know, what can can you talk a little bit about this? This new phase of shielding Israel from criticism using legal cudgels, such as the uh, IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, which is basically a conflation of um, Zionism with Judaism, and, and therefore any criticism of Zionism is, is, is supposedly an anti-Semitic act. Um, and, and really, I mean, just, just last week, the, um, uh, the, the UK government said that it would start naming uh, UK universities and councils um, who, that refused to adopt the IHRA definition um, and, and they could get their funding cut. This is really a push for uh, a sort of mandatory Zionism uh, across the UK, the US and Canada. Can you talk a little bit about, about how you see this um, happening right now? What's happening? Yes, it's a world. I mean, it's a worldwide movement. It isn't just in uh, Britain. I mean, you have. I, mean, I went to a talk by Ronnie Castriles, who headed the military wing of the ANC, uh, who's Jewish, uh, and he was banned by uh, Austria, the Vienna's uh, council from uh, council property. He had to speak in another venue, uh, 
Well, it was a unanimous vote uh, from the Greens to the SPD to the uh, neo-Nazis. You know, I mean, in fact, I mean, the, the strongest opponents of BDS and the German Bundestag, who were not content with simply a resolution but wanted to make uh, BDS illegal, were AFD, uh, the German neo-Nazi party. So, I mean, mm. <laughs> and Trump, I mean, is a white supremacist. He's an anti-Semite, I mean, uh, without a doubt. Yeah, it's it's. I find it it's quite fitting if you know historically the the reality of this history. Um, but um, many people might find it sort of ironic that it's Trump who's accusing the the Democrats, uh, left wing Democrats in the U.S. of of quote unquote anti-Semitism. When he's the one who literally calls neo Nazi very neo Nazis very fine people, you know, these people in Charlottesville chanting down the street with torches, you know, screaming that Jews will not replace us, and he's making excuses for them, and it is and so this speaks to the sort of redefinition, um, the attempt to redefine. It's about Jews. It's not about racism anymore. I mean, when Trump told four black Congress women to go home, even though their their home is in America. I mean, he then accused them of being anti-Semites and just to emphasise the point, because they hated Israel. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I mean, even Richard Spencer, the neo-Nazi founder of the alt-right, uh, believes in the Holocaust. He wants it de-Judified, that's all. But uh, he wants Jews taken out of the Holocaust. But the Holocaust is an important symbolic and ideological weapon these days. It, it has very little to do with people who went through that experience. Uh, so, yes, it's totally and utterly cynical. It began 30, 40 years ago with Erwin Kotler and others who came up with the idea of the new anti-Semitism. Uh, and in essence, Zionism has always accused its opponents of uh, hating the Jewish people, etc., etc., I mean, you can read the debates with Hannah Arendt. She faced the same accusations in the 1960s. Uh, Israel is a Jew, as far as they're concerned. Uh, It's a Jew amongst the countries. And so you criticise Israel, then uh, you're anti-Semitic. But it's become much more current today, much more current, because of the closer relationships with Israel coupled with the fact that Israel is in now de facto alliance with what's called the sunny axis, Saudi Arabia, the Gulf Sheikhdoms and Egypt and so on. Uh, you have a very close nexus there. Uh, and anti-Semitism is the weapon. Uh, and so we have to be very, I think, very, very clear about what kind of a state Israel is, which is it's a Jewish supremacist state. Uh, and when I say that, I you know, I've had a debate on in Al Jazeera about this. It's, it's not white supremacist, or if it is, it's secondary. It's Jewish supremacist. doesn't mean all Jews are supremacist, but it means that Israel is a Jewish supremacist state, just like Northern Ireland is, an, is a Protestant supremacist state. We don't say all Protestants are therefore bigots and racists. Uh, South Africa calls itself a Christian state. Uh, but it doesn't mean all Christians are supporters of apartheid. But th- that is what Israel is. If, uh, I was going to say, if I go there, I'll have certain privileges, but I suspect alongside one or two other Jews, I won't be admitted to it in the first place because it's uh, hostile territory for people on the left these days. So uh, my patrimony will never become my my own. Yeah, I think there is an exemption in the so-called law of return for people who are considered 
enemies of the state. <laughs> I believe that's the case. Um, yeah. So, um, can you just to sort of round up? Um, could you talk a little bit about how this manufactured crisis in the Labour Party has? spread to other parts of society in the UK and how it has really um, caused a lot of damage um, to the wider Palestine solidarity movement and uh, really affected the narrative in the UK for the worse. Well, yes. I mean, again, you can go back three, four years. I mean, I wrote an open letter to PSC uh, in essence saying that what starts in the Labour Party will not stop in the Labour Party. Uh, and that was why it needed to be taken seriously, and it wasn't taken seriously. Uh, today, I mean, it spread to every political party. In fact, the only party that refused to adopt the IHRA was uh, UKIP under Nigel Farage, ironically. But when asked about it, he simply said, we believe in free speech. And he was right <laughs> for once. Uh uh, yes, it's about free speech. It's about curtailing debate. The, the interesting thing about the IHRA is it's indefensible. No one defends it in, ter- in its own terms. You know, they have mm. a whole slate of academics and legal scholars. I mean, Lord, uh, Sir Stephen Sedley, the former Court of Appeal judge, who is himself Jewish, says uh, it's not even a definition because I mean, you can't have a 500-word definition. That's meaningless. Uh, but I, I think we need to go back to basics uh, and say, I mean, what I say often when I speak is, look, uh, my dad, uh, for all his sins, uh, he he fought uh, alongside thousands of Jews and non-Jews at the Battle of Cable Street against Oswald Mosley. He did not need a definition of anti-Semitism to know what it was. But most Jewish people don't. If you need a definition, there's something wrong anyway. And that's the whole point. Where it's not about a definition. And who's the British representative to the IHRA Council? Uh, Eric Pickles, a man who defends Tory MEPs sitting alongside, uh, near, well, I mean, fascists and anti Semites in the European Conservative Reform Group. Uh, it clearly has nothing to do uh, with anti Semitism. It's an ideological weapon which is used to attack us. So we have to understand where it's coming from. And you know, I mean, uh, I think I woke up pretty quickly, even before I was suspended, because I asked myself one simple question. All these allegations of anti-Semitism, I do not believe they are spontaneous. I don't believe they arise out of a a real and existing problem. So the question then is, where do they come from? It seems to me they're state-sponsored, they're state-inspired. And I imagine when Corbyn was elected, uh, there were panic stations in uh, Langley, Virginia, uh, uh, and other dubious places about what this means for the Atlantic Alliance you know Britain's second uh, special relationship uh, and so on uh, and the second major party as a leader doesn't believe in NATO isn't terribly fond of the Americans and what they do and so on so I imagine there are groups of people special subgroups and so on meeting as to how we best map this out and uh I mean, you could attack Corbyn because he doesn't believe in austerity, but I don't think that would have been terribly popular. Uh, terrorism was one angle, uh, and uh, anti-Semitism was another. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I have no doubt that Jonathan Friedland, for example, has strong links with British intelligence. He was one of the main conduits for this uh, narrative in The Guardian, because The Guardian played a key lead 
much more important than the mail and the express and so on. So, I mean, that is really what it's about. But I, I said really from the start, uh, simply, this is not about anti-Semitism. Jackie Walker, me, you, etc. We're collateral damage. They're not really concerned about the individual, except to use them. Uh, Right, it's about creating a narrative and about creating a division and smashing a popular movement, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Setting people amongst themselves. You know, it's a, it's a good, it's a good, it's as good a topic as any to because people have hang-ups about racism. They can't distinguish between prejudice uh, and racism. Racism is about action. It's about power relations. It's about you know the, the charter flight that Britain sent or was going to send. I'm not sure if it went. Uh, taking 50 black people to the West Indies. It's about Windrush. You know, it's about driving while black in the car at night in Hackney. You know, you I mean Jews don't go through any of this? They don't experience state racism. They experience prejudice by and large. And the only Jews who do experience racism because they're visibly different, the very Jews are at least keen on uh, everything that's been happening. But the letter from 34 rabbis, Orthodox rabbis, dissociating themselves from the attacks on Corbyn, who printed it? Yeah, yeah you're talking about Orthodox uh, Jewish communities um, in, pla- in places such as North London, who are sort of, you know, visibly Jewish and are quite often... Um, if not non-Zionist, actively anti-Zionist. Mm. Mm. I mean, to them, I mean, it's uh, they're not they're not linked into the kind of power circuits that the uh, board of deputies is, uh, and they're marginalised. Uh, they're the fastest growing because I mean, majority of Jews today in Britain are marrying out. We're assimilating, uh, which to Zionism is just equivalent as dying in the Holocaust, incidentally. Uh, these are the comparisons which are made because it's a Jewish people as a kind of racial entity. Uh, so, mm. yes, I mean, it's totally and utterly cynical. You know, I mean, one of the be- most interesting things in the, the last week, uh, you have the historian of the Jewish community, who's a right-wing Zionist, Jeffrey Alderman, professor at Buckingham University, who has he's written innumerable books and I have well some copies of them uh, on the Jewish community and British politics is, a, is my favourite uh, the problem with him being an academic is he's actually quite an honest guy yeah. uh, he says well Jeremy Corbyn I know is an anti-Semitic uh, he's done all these things on behalf of the Jewish community uh, and he, then he took a look at the IHRA and said well, what's all this? I mean, people always compare countries to Nazis. That doesn't make them anti-Semites and stuff. And uh, mm. he has his own take on it, which I may or may not uh, agree with. So he'd been banned from the pages of the Jewish Chronicle. He was a columnist for 14 yeah. years. You know, they, Stephen Pollock simply cannot stand the truth. Uh, and this is what it's about. So there's plenty of food for ammunition here, but we have to build a movement against it, uh, a movement which says the free speech is more important than our reliance on Israel as our uh, watchdog in the Middle East. Do you have any advice for leftists here in the U.S. um, who, you know, are supporting the campaign of Bernie Sanders, who definitely is getting the same treatment um, by Israel lobby groups, accusing him of of, um, cozying up to anti-Semites like Ilhan Omar, the congresswoman who dares to criticize Israeli policies and has been branded as an anti-Semite, as as you mentioned. 
Um, do you have any advice for for activists and and you know Bernie Sanders supporters uh, in terms of how to fight back the kind of smear campaigns that were leveled against Jeremy Corbyn and his supporters and and anti-Zionists? Well, I I hesitate to give anyone in the United States advice. I mean, I think you're doing pretty well. Uh, I admire and envy organizations <laughs> like Jewish Voice for Peace, which I think are far superior to anything we have here, incidentally. Uh, and I think also <laughs> Bernie Sanders, who's not as left-wing uh, as Jeremy Corbyn, is nonetheless much more of a vociferous, antagonistic person. So the first yeah. thing is don't allow them yeah. to set the terms of your debate. That, that is crucial. When Trump talks yeah. of anti-Semitism, you talk about white supremacism, about neo-Nazis being fine people and so on. Don't allow them... Because that was the problem in the Labour Party. Everyone started talking about anti-Semitism, which doesn't exist, uh, not about Palestine. So, I mean, you, you mustn't do that. But they have a greater problem, I think, because Bernie Sanders is himself Jewish. So I think probably will get less yeah. traction in any case. And uh, what are they doing? They're trying to associate him guilt by association at the third stage with someone who then knew someone who was anti-Semitic. You know, this is... But, I mean, yes, but that that is how it started against Jeremy Corbyn in the beginning, right? In 2015, 2016, they, they would always say... Um, well, I don't think Jeremy is himself personally anti-Semitic, but he shares a platform with anti-Semites or he gives excuses for it and, and so on and so forth. And that, that's how it went. And it sort of built up and built up um, until Margaret Hodge. He didn't fight yeah. back. The, the very first big interview he did was with Krishna Guru Murphy on Channel yeah. 4, who attacked him for saying that uh, Hamas, etc., are my friends. What he should have done, and which he would have done uh, years before, was to say, why is Hamas a terrorist group? Yeah. I may not agree with its politics, or Hezbollah for that matter, but they come about as a result of resistance to the Israeli state. Oh, and incidentally, yeah. Israel played a large part in the formation of Hamas, uh, but that's just by the by. He, he should have rejected, he said, he should have turned the questions around to uh, uh Krishna Guru Murphy and asked, why is the Israeli state which drops a ton bomb on a family house not terrorist? What is your definition of terrorism? The problem with Corbyn is you just got angrier and angrier and more inarticulate. And that was throughout. He took it personally. And, uh, you know, you, yes, he always used to deny he was an anti semite He didn't understand that what they meant by anti-Semitism was something different from what you and me understand. Yeah? What, what they're saying is not that you hate Jews, but... Uh, you don't like Zionism. Yeah. And you have to fear about that. Yeah. Okay, That's thanks very much, Tony, for coming on the podcast. Um, I'm sure we will have you on again. Thank you very um, much. Yes. Thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you again. Good luck. Thanks so much, Tony. That's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks to Sharif Zakut, our music maker and production assistant. For news, information, cultural features and reviews and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net, where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. 
Radio stations are free to use this podcast, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, support the Electronic Intifada by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening. <laughs>